RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. With me, as usual, is Mike. Hey, Dusty. Hey, Mike. And then Brian, unfortunately, is down with uh, with a bit of an illness. So no Brian this week. But we do have a special guest. So from the Sounds Like Crows podcast, we have Caleb joining us. Actually, Caleb, before we get into the topic of today's show, would you mind talking a little bit about Sounds Like Crows? Hey, yeah, sure. It is a Deadlands Reloaded actual play, which is a setting in the Savage World system. I think our ideology for running this show is actually pretty similar to the one you guys are about to start. Uh, we leave enough of the mechanics in that you could learn the game from listening to us. Um, but I think that we edit enough out to keep it interesting. Uh, we do about 45-minute episodes. Um, it follows a group of brothers that are kind of brought together from their separate lives to solve a collective mystery. I'm calling an audible here, Caleb, but at the end of this episode, I may... I may, uh, you know, let's keep recording. I may ask you a bit about recording an actual play so we can get your advice as we head into ours. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. Awesome. So today, uh, so, so first of all, Caleb, thank you for, for reaching out and talking to us. Um, Caleb for has reached me. out. Oh, absolutely. Caleb's reached out and offered to talk to us about running a West Marches style campaign. And I have to admit, Caleb, when I first read your email, I was like, a what? And I had to do some Googling. And then I Googled real quick, so I sounded smart before I responded. <laughs> Good. So a West Marches style campaign, I'm, I'll take a cut at describing it first, sure. and then I'll get you to add some detail. Um, it, it's basically, if, if I were to dumb it down for, for my level of understanding, it's like an MMO in D&D. Yeah, I think I would agree with that after playing. Um, I, I think it's sort of the style of gameplay you adopt when... You either have too many players to run your game or scheduling is a huge issue. It sounds like all the same problems that that West March's style campaigns can run into. They're the exact same problems that like a guild. Mike and I were members of the same mm -hmm. World of Warcraft guild, God, ten years ago. Um, that a guild runs into when trying to schedule raids. You know, who's available, you've got to have yeah. the raid leader, you've got to have your tanks, everyone else is optional. It just sounds like all the same issues. Yeah, basically, um how I ran it and how I think most run it is that you would set a day, say, hey, Wednesday, 4 p.m., I'm running a game, 4 to 8 p.m., I have six slots, who wants in? And then you would kind of prioritize people based upon if they've played recently or not. So um, it's it's called, so West March, is, it, it's massively multiplayer. For, let's start with the basics. How many players did you have in this campaign? Um, Right about 30. We had a little bit more than that. I'd say we had 16 incredibly active Play players and then up to 30 played like once every two weeks um, and I ran about one to four sessions a week um, most most weeks I ran at least two so how many players at one time like would you say average and then max average like a 5.8 uh, max was six I pretty <laughs> much always ran a six-person game I really do not like six-person games but out of necessity I just had to because there wasn't enough slots, unfortunately. And when you say six-person game, you're talking about six players plus GM? Yeah, correct. Wow. Yeah. I, I ran two six-player um, seven-people games at, at Con uh, last year, and, and a six-player game is a very different experience. It's a large table. 
It definitely is. Um, if you have a few sort of not very participatory players, it's fine. But it's definitely a challenge for for sure. Most of your time is spent trying to keep people on track. So West Marches, it derives its name. Sorry, we were doing some, some pre-show Googling um, from a guy named Ben. And I've lost his last name. Ben Robbins, I think. Yes, Ben uh, Robbins. And he posted about a West Marches style campaign back in... Uh, Ooh, well, the date on this post is just a couple of uh, just a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Weird. So that's no. wrong. Um, yeah. 2005, I think. Yes, that sounds right. Copyright 2005. So the West Marches style campaign's been around since 2005, since he posted about it, and the name West Marches is actually from his campaign setting. Yeah, and I think the whole game in general is kind of a callback to old school D and D hex crawly. Um, very most of the game was spent in combat um as opposed to my normal games which are like one combat maybe in a four-hour session so what do you get from a west marches style campaign that you don't normally get like why as a gm is it worth the effort the biggest thing to me is flexibility because i don't know how scheduling is for you guys but for me it is a living nightmare uh, none of my players really work consistent schedules and whenever you do get something scheduled, you know, it tends to get redone. So it's nice to just be able to say, hey, on this time, at this time, on this day, we are playing D&D. It's nice that you get to play as much as you want, as little as you want, as a DM. Um, that's, that's primarily the value I gained. And then on top of that, just the most involved I've ever had players in a I've ever had players be in a game I'm running. It was kind of insane. When you have that many people, the hype just sort of feeds off each other consistently to a point where like people were writing 10,000 words a week in RP outside of the game. That's awesome. That's Mike. insane. So, so coming from a guy who struggles to do his homework that his DM asked him to do like maybe once every three months, that is an insane level of engagement. Yeah, I have never seen anything like it before or since, to be honest. And Mike, you read my mind. I was completely going to tease you about, I can't even get Mike to do his, his, his you know, 200 word essay homework. <laughs> I can't, I can't get like a, you can't get like a paragraph out of me. Yeah, that's. <laughs> so I'm still stuck on, on, on trying to wrap my mind around mechanically how this works and, and kind of oh. defining it. So you 30 players, six at a time, couple yeah. sessions a week. Um, do any players overlap sessions? Are there, you know, for, and, and, and I'm sure those at home listening understand that I'm sure there's a million ways to do this, but we're, we're talking about Caleb about, about his game and his way he did it. So in your game, was there a lot of overlap between the folks that would come to those, those weekly sessions? Like did some people show up at session one and session two or, or something like that? So there were kind of two groups of players. There were the really active players that showed up at least you know, at least every two weeks, but more likely every week. And then there was sort of the people that only played once a month, once every two months. So of those active players, yeah, they saw each other a lot. Um, the, quite a few of them played over 50% of the total sessions that were played, or so says my Excel spreadsheet. And then of the inactive players, quite a few of them just never met each other. Uh, so it's, it's always funny talking about the game with them because they share stories that the other people didn't even know about. There was one dungeon in particular that uh, we spent seven sessions in, and there were quite a few parties that didn't realize somebody else had already been in there. 
So stuff like that adds a lot of value to the game, I think, too, where it feels like other people are interacting with the world besides yourself. Yes, let me dig in on that. So how'd that work? Like a party goes in the dungeon and then before another party can go in, do they like have to leave the dungeon and get back to town? Are there certain points they can save? Can a party happen across another party? And if so, if those players aren't there, how do you handle that? Yeah, this is actually one of the really important things about the West March um, framework is that you're required to start in the same town and end your game in the same town every single session which is a pretty hard restriction to work around as a GM, but it's kind of necessary. Um, and then the rule was if you didn't make it back to the town by the end of the session, you roll a d20. On a 1, your character would get captured by some monsters in the march, and they would have to be retrieved before you could play that character again. Ooh. Well, so I'm glad I'm a- I asked that, because that sounds much more manageable than what I was thinking before. Yeah, I've I've thought about starting it up again and having a system where people sign up for like three sessions at a time and you can have a longer story. But I think if you were doing it for the first time, definitely say start end every session in the same town. Logistically thinking about that is is that just kind of uh, trying to put a limitation on on the scope of their party, right? And I don't mean limitation in a negative way. I mean, you know, you say you have a, a three hour session planned for for this part of of the adventure is is that just to say okay we've got three hours to fit this adventure in if we don't get it within these three hours there's a potential penalty that you might pay there if you get a bad roll well the other thing about the format is like you don't really run them through stories you set up locations within hexes that they can stumble across and maybe there's some interaction between locations so let's say there's like um a werewolf den all right, and they're attacking some goblins to the south. Those would be two separate locations that the players could stumble upon randomly, depending on where they want to go that session. And then maybe one hex would lead to the other, but that would be them finding meaning and finding the narrative as opposed to me making it. So that was really liberating in a way because you don't have an adventure you have to try to get them through. It's just, cool, if you guys want to wander around in the wilderness for four hours and have a bad session... We can do that, and that happened many times. <laughs> so, for for me, and I'm tying it back to my own experience, the the MMO analogy really keeps getting stronger in my head yeah. as, as I really understand this. It's as if you created, you know, to use vanilla WoW terms, you know, Mulgor and the Barons, and you know, just you create all these Absolutely. zones with hex maps. You create the maps, you create the monsters, but the difference is. There's one sort of guild playing, and the whole world is instanced for that guild. So if someone shows up and kills, you know, this group of, of centaurs, then that group of centaurs is dead for everyone else who comes through there. Yeah, uh, the MMO analogy is really good, to be honest. It does, it if you look at that as a baseline and then think about what an RPG can add on top of that, so people can be making allies out there that other people aren't aware of, People can be making huge enemies that parties run into without knowing why they're upset at them and why they're attacking them. They just do. Um, Locations can be destroyed or created. And one thing that evolved differently about West Marches that I ran as opposed to Ben Robbins and most that I've heard of is they focused a lot on the town. They focused on building businesses and building relationships in the town. One player started a guild 
and then created taxes and started to tax the other players for bringing magic items back into the town. And then he made this scheme where he somehow owned every magic item that came into the town and it, and it worked. And by the end of the game, he was just running the whole town. He had the guards in his pocket and I don't know. It was really cool. Um, we had a meta plot thing going, which is something I feel would be hard to do in an MMO where you can have this continuous story shared between all the players. And yeah, I, I really, sorry, I'm just going to keep gushing about this game. I think I had so much fun. No, you should. It sounds awesome. So yeah, when I say it's like an MMO, I'm saying that for frame of reference. I'm not trying to be a reductionist at all. Um, part of the reason I got out of MMOs, and, and we've talked a little bit about this before, is you get frustrated that you can't, you know, establish your own taxes or establish your own um, guild or, you know, get a group together or make friends with the NPCs or start a business with the NPCs. I don't think anyone is ever frustrated they can't set up taxes, Dusty. Well, just yeah, well, well <laughs> interact with society, I suppose, is what, is, is what I meant there. But yeah, sure, good yeah. point. Um, you, you get frustrated at the, the superficiality of the interactions in an MMO. Yeah. So, so the MMO concept with the layer of, you know, human brains cooperating on a game and allowing you to do whatever you want. Oh, that sounds actually super fun. So question for you, were the players adversarial? Like were the, were the different parties adversarial and setting up opposing guilds and, and you know, taxes that weren't in another party's best interests or was everyone cooperating? Everyone was cooperative. However, I did set up a rule at the beginning, which in hindsight was maybe a bad idea, that PvP resulted in you becoming an NPC. I set that up like session zero, wanted to make sure that didn't happen. But what that did do is, while they weren't adversarial, they were competitive. And that was actually a really big problem I had where people, it kind of changes the dynamic of the game when there's a spreadsheet with everyone's levels on it that everyone can see and you can see how many sessions everyone has played where people are constantly trying to get at the top of that list and get an edge on magic, magic items and XP. Um, I didn't enjoy that aspect of the game for sure. If I ever did it again, I would change that. So one thing I'm wondering, actually two things I'm wondering about, right? So how do you, how do you keep your players engaged enough that they drive the story? Cause that's something we struggle with almost we, uh, we, we rely, I think, on Dusty too much to, to unfold and build the narrative for us. There were definitely a large amount of my players that did not have the level of engagement I would have liked. Buy-in is really important. I think pruning your players and interviewing players before you put them into the game helps significantly. Um, anytime we had a session where, you know, I had three all-stars and three okay people, it was great. There were definitely a few sessions where engagement was lacking. A lot of it is giving feedback to your players. What I found with new players, and I like we played with a lot of them in Westmarch, is that's the first feedback I give them is just constantly interject yourself into anything. Because if if you're not talking in an RPG, you don't really exist in the mind of other players. And so if you can force yourself in there. I think that just fee everyone feeds off of each other and the engagement builds. Um, a lot of it, though, is some players you just can't get that from. I don't know if that answers your your question, but that's all. No, it, it it definitely does, and that's that's actually interesting. I don't I don't think we've ever approached feedback 
from DM to player in our game before. And that, that might be something, I don't know that for a show about feedback, Mike, holy crap. (laughs) What a blind spot. Yeah. We've never talked about that. Yeah. What I do, the easiest thing to start with is ask another player, what kind of relationship do our characters have? Are we Gimli and Legolas? You know, are we Scully and Mulder? Find a touchstone that you guys can agree on, and it gives you a foundation to work on. In addition to that, if you can plan at least one interaction with another player, like, hey, we're both from the human lands down south, we should talk about that next session. Cool. And you don't need to script it, you don't need to come up with questions, but if you both have that plan in place, when a lull in the gameplay comes up where that would be natural, it gives you something to shoot for rather than just being awkward and not knowing how to take the scene. I'll say we we talked recently on the show about how, you know, player player to player role play has been a blind spot for us. All of our role play has been focused on on player and DM to move the story forward. So this is another another lever to pull there. Mike? I was gonna say the exact same thing that something I think our game has lacked is is characters or players building relationships with other players' characters. You know, the the relationship between Merciel and Ezrin never existed. Pretty much every campaign we've done, we've all just been people in a party with a common goal of winning at D&D or whatever whatever campaign we're in. And when you think about really good TV shows that, that create this ensemble cast and create this idea of a team, and I'm thinking of like Leverage, and I know I frequently refer to Star Trek The Next Generation. So much of the show, you know, 80% of it is plot, but the through line of the show are the relationships between characters. The fact that in Leverage, you know, Parker drives Elliot crazy. You know, Hardison and Parker's budding relationship. Um, Nathan and Sophie's more mature relationship. Like, you could tell I'm a Leverage fan. But uh, the relationships between characters. Dude, CSI, same thing. 80% mm-hmm. of every episode is is the mystery of the week. And then the rest of it is, you know, how are these characters relating differently now than they were before? Or, or who has a touchstone moment from their past where they're going to have kind of a teary scene when they talk about their brother who was also killed by by a, you know, a shovel to the back of the head or whatever. Um, apologies to anyone with a brother killed by a shovel to the back of the head. That's at least one of your listeners. <laughs> I hope not. I, I sincerely, we're leaving that joke in because I, I hope it's a joke in, in this world. But uh, I totally agree with you, Dusty. Every good, every good piece of drama that I like, that for sure is the focus, is the interaction between characters. Anything you can do to encourage that will lead to your players be, being more engaged in the game world and in the game itself. So a question from the opposite side of that, and I don't want to ask you to rat on any of your players <laughs> or, or talk about them behind their backs, but um, hypothetical outside of your game, I would worry about not players who aren't engaged. I'd worry about that player who's engaged too much. I'd worry about that player where, you know, I'd never had this, Mike, but you have to read a freaking novel between sessions to stay caught up with their backstory or the player that becomes the de facto main character by showing up to every session when you have other players that do a better job reading social cues or responding to the story or working with each other 
that maybe don't make it to every session. Could you see that being an issue in a game like this? Could, could that be an issue? Hypothetically, it definitely was an issue, yes. The gameplay definitely encourages power gamers. I don't necessarily like that word, but people that are striving for that XP. And definitely, I would agree that it rewards that behavior. If I was to do it again in the future, I'd want to figure out a way to encourage RP over killing monsters. But unfortunately, D&D doesn't prioritize that. That's a $64,000 question, because again, with the MMO analogy, Mike, yeah. remember our, our guild in World of Warcraft? It, was, it wasn't the people who were best suited to running the guild that ran the guild. Yeah. It, it was, was the people, people who were on 24-7, yeah. Yes, the people yeah. who were always on. And, and those are the people that you maybe don't want running the guild. Yeah, as far as people writing novels in between sessions, it was fine. It was a lot to keep up on. At, at the time, I was, I was riding the bus to and from work every day, so I had uh, an hour a day on every workday to read that. So I just spent the entire bus ride catching up and writing people back on my phone. There were quite a few players, though, that, I would just say, listen, I can't read this. I'll get back to you by Wednesday. And that worked That worked pretty well uh, for putting a limit, to, a limit on their fiction outside of the game. So let's talk about that a little bit more. I think earlier you said you were running between one to four sessions a week. How did, how did you prepare for your average session? Okay, so man, if any of my players are listening, I'm sorry for just lying to you guys for like six months. But at the beginning of it, I wrote about 20 pages, um, and each page had about three locations on it. Very quick and minimal, left a lot of room for me to improv the location when they showed up based upon time and the party composition and stuff. Uh, a lot of it was kind of boring, you know? Like you would, the example I used earlier was a, a real thing. Like one location was just there's a den of werewolves here, there, they're hunting the goblins that live to the south. They have this treasure. There's this many of them. And that would take up like an hour and a half of the player's gameplay time. So front-loading your prep work is definitely important. Before you start the game, just get a bunch out of the way. The issue I ran into is, like Dusty said, you divide the world into these biomes or regions. And then as the regions get further and further away from the town and further into the wilderness, they become more dangerous and their um their level scale goes up but if you prepped all of that like i started with um 10 by 10 hexes 12 miles a piece if you prep all of that it's a ridiculous amount of work and if you don't know which direction the players will push it's not necessarily helpful prep work either so a lot of the prep work i didn't even end up using because they pushed in really hard in one direction without really touching a lot of the other stuff. And near the end, I just didn't have time. So I ended up just improving most of it. Um, I made a lot of random encounter tables before the game started specific for each biome. And I would start to roll on that and think about how the session was going to play out as they were role playing at the start of the game and figuring out their provisions and deciding who would take what magic items. So I, I just um, bullshitted most of it, to be honest. So what's the life cycle of a campaign like this? Like, did you have a clear end goal in mind? Was there one necromancer they're trying to take out? Like, like how did you know when this campaign was over? And, and what was the life cycle of participation throughout? Um, so 
I didn't start with a really clear goal. I had one big twist I wanted to hit by the end of the game and knew I'd figure that out somehow. I left that nebulous enough that I could apply it to any of the enemies in the different biomes they went into. There was like four or five major factions they could have tangled with, and then whichever one they tangled with would be responsible for the plot at the end of the game. Um, I was just going to run it till I got sick of it, and I broke my leg, and then I couldn't play D&D for about three or four weeks, and that kind of killed the game. We got it started up for a couple more weeks, and then I ran, I think, three sessions as a finale, like a three-part finale where three separate groups were defending the town from the big bad guy. I think you could run it however long you wanted to run it. There would be a problem with people reaching max level, but you could force them to retire and give them some new perk for starting a new character. I think that would work just fine. Um, one player made it from level 1 through 20. He had quite a few contenders, but most of them died. I think we had 17 player deaths in the whole campaign. Uh, character deaths. <laughs> important um, distinction. Yeah, important distinction. And I think it took him, man, I think he played in a little over 40 sessions. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's an expansive game. I've never run anything anywhere near the scale of this. I've I've been running, I've been DMing for years, and Caleb, off this game alone, you probably have more hours logged, quote-unquote, at the table than I do. Yeah, that's what I thought was funny at the time, is we had been playing a Pathfinder game once a month for three years, and within like two or three months, I had ran more sessions than my brother had running that game in all wow. of those years. I've never had a player honestly go from 1 to 20. I never have either. Until that game, it was really cool. We even had to specifically do a cheat campaign so we could have the experience of running <laughs> level 20 player characters. Oh, man. I listened to that episode, you guys, where, Dusty, your premise for that one-shot was so good that I just stole it and ran a level 20 one-shot for four people like two weeks ago, and it was great. They That's fought awesome. a bunch of demons. It was cool. Yeah, I hope you started it better than I did, where where they knew they were demon hunters. Hey, I learned from your mistakes, okay? <laughs> awesome. That's the first time anyone's told me they've ever run a game based on our show. Tanner from Shadow of the Cabal also really wants to do that. We were talking, what was the line that you had? Uh, there's, you've spent like 166 demons escape from hell and you've spent your life hunting them, and today is the day you kill the last three or something like that? Yeah, it was 144. I, I, I stole that from a show called Brimstone. There was, a, And I think it was 144, but uh, I loved that show, Brimstone. It was a sci-fi show. It was only on for maybe 10 or 15 episodes. Hmm. And the idea was 144 demons escaped from hell, and the devil chose another soul, um, who was an ex-cop, to go chase them all down. And the whole demons escape from hell thing is such a trope that I've heard in, in other stories uh, that, that I wanted to use it for the one shot. But I'm pretty sure it was 144 based on based on Brimstone. So okay. I can't claim it as totally original. <laughs> Did, didn't we That's rag on right. you for being 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo? <laughs> <laughs> I think so at the time. That's the I issue I did. have. I think we did, yeah. We're, we're, we're like that. Dude, that is all. I'm sorry. I just need a minute for my head to be swollen up about someone running a, a game that we talked about on our show. Mike, what a moment! That's a that's a huge moment for us. I know, right? That kind of makes it all worthwhile. That's pretty awesome. 
It does. I'm, I'm a little sad Brian's not here for that. I know. So Sorry, Caleb. And we'll leave this in the show because this is awesome. But, uh, you know, we, we do the show. We don't do it. We don't promote ourselves that hard. I don't hit Twitter that hard. We don't grow the audience that hard. Um, we do this show because we really enjoy it. So that we found an audience member who, who ran an, a game inspired by the show is, is such a moment. Thank you for that. Yeah, man. Uh, all of my players died except one. It was great. Oh, man. That's a characters very, again. Also, <laughs> characters again. Also learning from my mistake where I had that CR20 bad guy that Mike dropped in one hit. Yes. <laughs> I think I had four CR20s and like 20 CR4s and like five CR10s or something like that. Good for you. It was fun. Right. Anyway, so we were talking about life cycles. Um, end it whenever you want. Start it whenever you want. I I think that's also one of the things that gives you in value is your players aren't really expecting that much. The expectation is really low because you're just showing up for these random, almost adventurers league games. So when I say life cycle, I guess what I mean too, I've tried, emphasis on the try, to play in a couple of play-by-posts and forums and stuff. And those games seem to have a life cycle where everyone's excited to make characters. Everyone makes characters. Everyone writes a cool backstory. Everyone has cool mechanics. Everyone's excited about the first session. And then participation just tremendously drops off from there until you wind up with a couple of people, like literally, usually the GM and one other person who are carrying on the story for everyone else. And that seems to be the standard life cycle for play-by-post games, in my experience. Was there a life cycle of participation like that, or did it stay pretty steady? It stayed pretty steady. Um, I think I probably could have run that game for at least a couple more years. Just when you get more players, they just feed off each other is what I found. Because I've had quite a few games just die over Christmas, you know? You, you know, you take a month off and no one, it's hard to schedule, and then a month and now it's been two months and then someone goes on vacation it's been three months and that didn't really seem like a problem because even if we had half the group not be able to make it for a month straight the other half of the group was still going strong and our town seems to have an, an incredible amount of people that are willing to play D&D or maybe we're just good at recruiting them where we would just bring in a lot of new players too. So how'd that work if someone missed like you know two months worth of sessions and all of a sudden they, they, they come back into play, you know, what will their character have been doing and whose responsibility is it to come up with what their character has been doing? It's their responsibility. We did play around with mechanics for downtime and stuff you'd be doing, but all of it kind of just ended up being a lot and I'd rather just explain it narratively. So they would post on Slack with, Hey, this is what I've been doing for the last two months or other players just wouldn't. Other players would just show up and it was fine. You know, I think probably about 50% of our players posted on Slack, which, man, I'm sorry, I should have. So Slack is a messaging service like Discord where you can set up channels. We set up a channel for like role play. We had like three for role play. We had one for table talk, one for scheduling. And then people would direct a message, message each other, role playing out scenes, and then they'd edit it together and post it as a document to Slack. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So yeah. off role-playing on their own and coming back to share that with the group. Yeah, because originally they were just posting it in the channels, but it ended up being a huge mess, and if two people were role-playing together for like three days, they just held everything up. So 
we changed to that format pretty quickly. So two questions left and, and, and we'll finish the show strong. And, and just so everyone listening at home knows, um, we will bring Caleb back for another episode next week where we talk about the specific lessons that he learned from, from, from his campaign. But the two questions I'm going to ask, I'm going to go ahead and tell you both of them so you can be thinking about them. The first question is, I'm going to give you an opportunity to call out your best player. You know, let's, let's not do the worst. We don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. But if you're comfortable talking about your best player, whether you name them or not, um, give us an idea of what makes an exemplary player in this style of campaign is the first question. And the second question is going to be, was this worth the effort? Would you ever do this again? And uh, and if not, why? And if so, why? My my best player is Marshall, also known as Mars. He is a player in my actual play, my Deadlands actual play. And what he did really well is engage other players while I wasn't. So a six-player game is obviously quite a challenge to tackle. And what happens quite often is that you'll have two conversations going, like 25% of the game. You'll have the conversation where the GM is taking care of somebody, and then the rest of the group, if they're not involved in the scene, you know, splits off into something. What Marshall would do is take advantage of those opportunities to make that a role-play scene between him and another character to a point where they would role be role-playing for three or four minutes, and I, I wouldn't even know what they were talking about the whole time. That and his participation in Slack really helped. I think he really understood that it was about taking the whole game and making a story with it rather than just focusing on his character. Um, additionally, he showed up for every game there was an open slot for <laughs> if it was not filled. That's um, awesome. So kudos to Marshall. Kudos to Marshall. So I think you want someone that engages other players and helps you run the game almost. That's and, and, and not something I can comment upon. No offense to Mike O'Brien. None taken. Yeah. All right, awesome. And the second question was, you know, was this worthwhile? Would you do it again? And uh, why or why not? I would do it again. I'm constantly thinking about how to do it again. Um, first of all, it definitely took a toll out of my life in general. The amount of interaction I had to have with that amount of people was pretty exhausting. It was a second job for a really long time. I think just the excitement around that game was crazy. I was thinking about a fictional world every day while we were running that game and not thinking about it because I wanted to thinking about it because it was that interesting. I think just that value enough would be enough for me to run it again, to be honest. Um, for other people out there, I mean, another thing I liked about it is it's so easy to bring in new players. I don't know if this happens to you guys, but I, you know, I'll bring up that I play D&D &D to somebody, they'll go, oh, that's cool, I'd love to play. And if you've got one or two games going, it's not like they can just show up for a session, you know, without feeling really out of place or without disrupting the game. So it was nice that myself and everyone in the game had an outlet to go, oh, well, if you want to try it out, just show up for Westmarch's game. Like, we have free main characters, you can show up and just play. If you don't like it, go home, you know? So again, like an MMO, like, like the classic you know, new player and they get someone established to show them around or help them run some quests. And I mean, they could do that metagamey, but also in game, you could explain it as, Hey, you're a new bounty hunter. Let me show you the ropes of bounty hunting and let me show you around. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So thank you. For, uh, I, I learned a lot, Mike. I don't know about you, 
No, absolutely. It's it's very interesting. I want to run a campaign like this. I don't think I ever will, and I'll tell you why not. <laughs> um, not because of the time commitment. I don't think I could find 30 people <laughs> that live around here. I, I feel lucky to have Mike, Brian, Chris, and Nathan in our area. We're, we're lucky enough to play in person. Um, I cannot imagine finding 30 people to play a, a game of, of that scope with. I don't mean to ask you where you are, but are you in like a really urban area? So I live in uh, Fort Collins. It's a little town in Colorado. I, I don't know our population. I think it's like 25,000 or something. There's not a lot around here except beer. There's a ton of breweries. Um, it's a pretty liberal state, I guess, uh, at least most of the people I know. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. My place of work, like 10% of them have played D&D or are currently playing D&D. I'll, like every time I talk to someone in a new department, if it comes up, there's at least one person in every department um, in my location that has has played or is playing. It's crazy. I was in Qdoba the other day, and I was going through the line, and we got talking about it, and he's like, hey, man, if you ever need a player. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was like three days ago. Yeah, ever need a player makes me laugh. It reminds me of those, uh, again, MMO, when there'd be you know, <laughs> yeah. people looking for groups like, hey, we have a group together. We just need a tank. Like then you don't have a group. If you need a tank, you don't have a group. And my favorite of the posts where we got a bunch of players together. We just need a GM. Like if you don't have a GM, you don't have a group. Like you have some players, but you you need a GM to play. You need a tank to raid. Yeah. All right. That's that's off the soapbox. Awesome. Um, Caleb, thanks for stopping by. Looking thanks forward for to me. recording with you and, and talking about the lessons you learned from this game now that we've set up what a West Marches campaign is and, and, and how it runs. Let's tear this baby apart. Thanks for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you. <laughs>